Welcome to Conlangery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm William Annis. With me today is historian, composer, and author Ada Palmer. Hello. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. So the episode today is a little bit different. In May, I started seeing references to Ada's book, Too Like the Lightning. Max Gladstone mentioned it. Joe Walton wrote an arresting, I don't know if we call it a review, a reaction to the book. Um, she calls it a blurble. A blurble, yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, showed up on Crooked Timber, so I went off and read it. I'm still sort of processing it, frankly. Um, and it really only has one reference to what we would recognize as conlanging in it, which we'll get to later. But there's so much else about language going on that is just interesting on its own. Um, there are a lot of conlangers who are also writers, so it just seemed like if I could get her on to do an interview, this might be interesting, even if it's a little off our mainline topic. So I have a really hard time describing this book without sounding like I've been kicked in the head. So, <laughs> so Ada, I'll turn that over to you, if you could give a quick overview of, of what you were trying to do. I also have trouble describing this book, uh, but it's an effort to write something that's set in a very golden age feeling exciting science fictional future we are 500 year well we're in the 25th century as the book takes place earth has flying cars and robots to pick up the trash and futuristic cities and a moon base and all of these exciting science fictional things but if golden age science fiction authors tended to interrogate their worlds with a certain palette of questions generally oriented around heroism, the relationship between humanity and technology, the potential of science, later trans questions of transhumanism. I wanted to revisit that kind of fun future, which isn't written very often, with an eye more toward cultural developments, how languages would evolve, how national identities would evolve, how religion and religious identities would, involve, would evolve toward uh, such a future. I was inspired by 18th century philosophical novels, works like Voltaire's short story Micromegas, which in fact is a work of science fiction in which aliens come to the Earth uh, one of them's from Saturn and another is from a star near Sirius and they come to Earth and they're huge and to them humans are tiny specks but they eventually figure out how to communicate and when there is first contact what they talk about is whether or not you can use science to prove the existence of the soul and whether Thomas Aquinas <laughs> or Descartes is correct and whether there is uh, dualism or multiple layers to the universe and you read it and you think boy that's not what aliens and humans talk about in a first contact scenario these days right. but that has evolved over time so I wanted to interrogate a golden age future with 18th century questions about the nature of society its artificial constraints uh, how it can be engineered or shouldn't be engineered uh, and other such things also metaphysics. Also metaphysics. <laughs> Just uh, along the way. <laughs> um, so it's interesting you talk about the golden age. Uh, in many ways, at the start at least, the book makes me think of uh, certain uh, cyberpunk tropes. Um, and, and we can get onto this in the concept of the hives in particular, where cyberpunk imagines that the existence of basically the internet will obliterate traditional national boundaries whereas you seem to think that that's going to take flying cars that move really, really fast. 
or certainly uh, some kind of transportation revolution. Because in a sense, if you look right now at our society, we have a lot of overlayered diasporic communities where the community of people that I identify with and spend most of my time interacting with is spread around distant parts of my own country and a number of other countries that share the same language and a number of a number of further countries where uh, English is a common second language. And that community is what's shaping me culturally and where I find my identity rests. But it can't be the practical governing body for my life while it's still true that I have to live in a particular place because I have to be able to commute to work. And so do other friends. And very frequently I'll experience elements of that diasporic community being broken apart, important nuclear groups of people who had been doing creative projects together, ripped apart when one of them gets a job in a faraway place. Okay, so let's uh, jump into this. One uh, thing that can happen in especially early science fiction is how do you convey the idea of a completely different world? And one way to do that is to come up with words like frelling or fracking or globity hoop to describe things that are perfectly commonplace, but to add a magical sort of alien sounding words to them, or to come up with a sort of grandiose text speak like sonic screwdriver. Um, what I appreciated in uh, your book is we have a lot of this terminology. Most of the time I could figure out what the history behind them was. Um, and I know that you did a lot of deep world building before you even started writing this book. So I've just picked up a set of a few words. Maybe we can look at some more where I just wanted to explore your ideas behind them and how you decided on using that word. Sure. And a lot of my ways of thinking about how words develop come from the fact that as a historian, I spend a lot of time looking at the history of Latin as a language mm -hmm. and efforts of people who are using Latin after the classical world, medieval, renaissance, and even modern people, to try to figure out how to express in Latin new things that didn't exist in the classical era, and how just taking the vernacular word and putting an ending on it is always a less successful thing than coming up with extant Latin words that you can then repurpose for a new way. Um, so, hamax osticus, iron road, i.e. railroad... Uh, is a very good Latin word for a train, whereas uh, there are lots of comparably unsuccessful ways to create Latin neologisms. Yeah. So I had that in mind as my model. Yeah, that was a, a problem for Latin from the get-go, sort of importing Greek philosophical and grammatical, basically Greek science, right. uh, into Latin. I mean, that was part of Cicero's big success that isn't much discussed, is bringing... Greek into uh, Greek thought into Latin with you know tidy Latinity rather than just um, borrowing right. the Greek words, right? Rather than or what Lucretius does, where he sort of transliterates the Greek into Latin, creating right. words that every human has always seen as gibberish, right? <laughs> uh, even Cicero. <laughs> um, so let's start with the big structure. Let's just talk about hives. Sure. Uh, so in this case, this is these large non-geographic political groups that are based on identity. Uh, when people are born and grow up, it doesn't make sense to have your nationality determined by where you happen to be born when there are flying cars, which means it's perfectly normal to live in the Bahamas while you work in Tokyo and have lunch in Paris while your spouse works in Antarctica. 
So people don't necessarily live in places that have anything to do with their cultural identity. Some do, others don't. Uh, thus, instead of citizenship being determined by birth, young people grow up and take the adulthood competency exam, and after passing it, choose which of the different political groups to join based on which ones fit their political philosophies. Uh, as for the origin for the, of the word, my thought process in this case was, all right, this word was created in the 22nd century uh, during a moment of big political upheaval involving charismatic political leaders who would have introduced this concept using political rhetoric. So I thought, what rhetorical image would be a plausible one for those 22nd century rhetoricians to use? And I thought of Francis Bacon's simile of the three insects, which he uses in his case to introduce science. Um, he says there are three kinds of scientists. Uh, the two bad kinds are the ant, which hoards information, the spider, which spins elaborate uh, theories out of its own uh, body without any kind of actual coherent relationship to nature. And then the experimental scientist, as Bacon wanted people to be, who is the honeybee, uh, and harvests the fruits of nature and then processing them through the organ of his own body produces something good and useful for mankind. This is a very vivid image. Bacon uses it effectively, and I saw how it could be repurposed in my imagined 22nd century to be describing the geographic nations and empires that those politicians are criticizing and then praising the new group, the hive, i.e. made of bees, right. that it is. But one of the things that makes the image more, even more successful and I thought more plausible to reuse in this context is that Bacon is reusing this image from Petrarch, who is reusing this image from Seneca, who is reusing this image from Greek sources, mm -hmm. who may well have been reusing it from sources that we don't have. So it's one of these perennial political, uh, sort of perennial rhetorical images that's so powerful that it instantly makes you understand why the word hive means what it means. And once you've heard the metaphor, boom, you've got it, and the word is just comfortable. Yeah. And it's worth mentioning to people that this book, I mean, we're talking about these Enlightenment philosophers, Enlightenment ideas, um, both as, you know, megromegas, but also. The Enlightenment is taken very, very seriously in the world you've created. Yes. Um, again, interpreted through a world with, uh, you know, flying cars. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a imagined future which posits a revival of 18th century philosophy, which explosively transforms this future period in the same way that in the Renaissance, a revival of classical philosophy explosively transformed that. Right. Okay. So another interesting concept was that of the Bosch. Mm. Um, and here, uh, that's actually, I think, the most frustrating word because there was no way I could communicate clearly in text how it should be pronounced. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I actually do if you're a nitpicky linguist because it specifies that the creator of the term it was ethnically Japanese and created the term out of the Japanese word ibashō. Um, basho is sort of a place, e is the positive prefix, and ibasho sort of means home, but it's a much more philosophically and emotionally powerful word in some sense. It means the good place, the place you are comfortable, the one and only place in the world where you can fully be yourself. 
this is not a definition that I was able to plop into the book because it's a little unwieldy. Yeah. Uh, but in this case, I was again thinking about, all right, the Bosch, which is this new family unit where instead of nuclear families, there are groups of friends who live together in a group of four to 12 and raise children together. Uh, that's developed in the 22nd century, and it's developed primarily by some scientists. So I thought about where those scientists are likely to come from, decided this scientist would be Japanese, and thought, well, what term would that scientist want to create for something that is replacing the nuclear family and supposed to be better? So I thought of the Japanese word, ibasho. But the fact that if it got transplanted into an anglophone scientific context, everybody would shorten it. So ibasho becomes bosh, uh, losing its initial and final vowels. Right. So sticking with um, homey things, there's the kitchen tree, which I loved, and is not called anything like the replicator or anything like that. Nope. It's a tree. It's in the kitchen. Well, again, I thought about what sorts of things are in my kitchen and how kitchen things tend to have very comfortable and mundane names. Otherwise, you can't even remember what they're called. And and we like kitchens to be warm, comfortable, familiar. Kitchen tree communicated what this thing is instantly. Uh, so did meat maker. Right. Uh, you know, we all know what a bread maker is. So if you have a meat maker, it's instantly clear what that is. I never even have to say. Um, and again... You know, you you can. There have been kitchen innovations which have had very new pushing the boundaries techno names. I don't mean imaginary ones. I mean real ones. Yeah. But usually they don't get called by that. People revert back to coffee maker, blender, right, or fridge. Yes. Instead of refrigerator. Yeah. I've got a few more here. These are going to be bigger ones. Let's go with the sensayers first. Sure. Uh, so in this world, a senseier is a spiritual counselor that's somewhere between a priest and a psychotherapist. This society has banned the public practice of religion and organized religion after a terrible historical incident called the Church War. Uh, another name that very clearly communicates right. real fast what it was. <laughs> and uh, people are not expected to all be atheists. Rather, people are expected to have inquiry and curiosity about theology, metaphysics, whether things do or don't exist, but to do this all privately and silently, uh, so that you have a weekly or bi-weekly or monthly meeting with your sensei and debate with that person in a, in a uh, safe and uh, politically closed space, uh, your ideas, and the sensei is trained in all different branches of the history of theology, metaphysics, all religions, different forms of atheism and skepticism, etc., and is supposed to be a neutral interlocutor to help you play around with all of the ideas of history and develop your own belief system. And then everyone has this, and this is the only format that theological activity is legally permitted to take in this society. So the term sensayer is introduced to the reader, and it's always... Uh, important to think about here introducing a new term as well. First, just maybe dropped a couple of times, and then by having the narrator actually directly ask the reader in one of his 18th century philosophical asides, which folk etymology of this word do you believe, reader? Mm -hmm. uh, do you believe that it's uh, derived from the non-existent Latin verb senseo? Do you believe <laughs> that it's uh, the Japanese sensei uh, 
turned into an American or an anglified uh, ER suffix uh, vocation? Uh, do you think think that it's the idea of a soothsayer with sooth substituted with sense, the idea being that there is no truth, there is only common sense in this modern society. And then the narrator specifies that the creator of the term didn't leave any notes of how she created it. Uh, Just my fun way of playing around with the fact that all of these different meanings combine in that term, which is one of the things that makes it immediately both comfortable to say, comfortable to have in a sentence, and full of reminders of things that it means. Right. I I don't know, did you read um, Stevenson's Anathem? Uh, I I haven't read it yet, but it's actually on my bookshelf next to me. Yeah, it's it's a big (laughs) book. But it does the same thing, where words are shifted in slightly subtle ways where you kind of know what they mean, they seem kind of familiar. They ultimately might be more surprising than you thought, but are still familiar enough to more or less point you in the right direction. Right. And that was, I mean, I reacted to Sensei in much the same way. Neat. So now we have a more complicated concept of the set set. Ah, yes. So I should uh, be clear to people who are not seeing this, it's just the word set given twice. With a, with a hyphen in between. Yeah. Set hyphen set. Uh, and that's a fun one because it's a couple hundred pages until we get it definition that gives us any sense of why this is the word for this thing. Right, right. Um, A set set is a kid who's been raised in a strange way, sort of surrounded by computers to develop their senses differently. And in the case of the children we see, actually they're adults by the time we see them, to interface with the computer in order to be able to uh, organize and uh, interface with a vast computer database. And so they they lie there with a complete full-body suit covered with sensors, and every square inch of the body, uh, plus the taste buds and everything else, are connected to sensors which give them input so that they can have this vastly complicated input from the system. And this is introduced as a set-set, It's a very aggressively modern thing, and the fact that that word also feels modern and neologistic and a little bit harsh with the hyphen in the middle uh, helps reinforce the fact that this is an uncomfortable element of the world in contrast with Bosch, Sensei, or Hive, which are more comfortable new words. Right. Uh, And we are immediately introduced to the fact that the characters themselves are uncomfortable with this. One of the characters is kind of paranoid about it. There's a whole political group that wants to ban this. There were riots about banning this. And then you wait a long time to hear what it means. And I really enjoy that period between when you meet the word and become used to the word, but don't yet know what it means. And the reader has sort of stopped wondering what it means, just accepting that this harsh, uncomfortable word represents this harsh, uncomfortable thing. Uh, Until we finally hear from the leader of a group of uh, psychotaxonomic researchers that uh, it means a set set, set in place set of what the uh, number criteria are when you evaluate this person on an elaborate set of personality tests Uh, and that it means that this is a person who is incapable of psychological development that from the beginning a scientist sat down to say, we want to develop a mind which is going to have exactly this pattern of behaviors and then lock that mind in place so that no change of environment or experience can affect that, a set set. Yep. Uh, And when we finally get that definition, it's both unexpected and scary 
because we'd gotten used to this term as a thing that was a little bit uncomfortable, but we weren't quite sure why. And then when it's pulled back and you really see it, it's sort of scarier in a different way than you expected. Yeah, I thought (laughs) the process I went through. So for me, at least that was a success. Good. Um, Yeah, I mean, every reader has a different experience, but I I described the goal. And if that was what you experienced. Exactly. That's like, oh, when they started, you know, I forget the. He starts spitting out those numbers. I'm like, oh. Yeah, well, I pay a lot of attention to tiny details of how you react emotionally differently to words on a page that contain hyphens, apostrophes, uh, special characters, etc. Okay, well, that then takes us on to a, a really interesting part. So the book is narrated by Mycroft. Yes. And he is a... Uh, he has a number of things. He is a uh, servicer, right? Which is a convict who has been sentenced to a life of permanent, what's the word? Permanent uh, public service, so that he travels around every day doing odd jobs for anybody who asks him to, and then gets food in return, and can have no other private property. So that's interesting. Uh, another interesting thing and useful to the uh, reader is having Mycroft as the narrator, is that he knows lots of languages. Yes. He is a heptaglot, in fact. A heptaglot? I didn't think to count how many he actually knew. But one thing that you do is, when the people are speaking Japanese, say, you use the conventions of Japanese punctuation. Right. Or the same thing with Spanish. It's suddenly, oh, there are inverted punctuation at the start of this question. Yes. Um, which is a way of consistently reminding the reader when we are seeing dialogue which is not in English. Because the text is presented in English, but the characters are actually not speaking English. And by having the punctuation of the dialogue match the way that that language is punctuated, whether it's French with the angle brackets right. uh, or some other means. Uh, later in book two, there's going to be German. And when they're speaking German, all the nouns are capitalized. <laughs> Wonderful. (laughs) In the English. And that gives the reader a constant reminder of the fact that this is being translated, being filtered by the narrator, and also that we are not in an Anglophone space. I'm very aware of the fact both that the majority of my readers at this point are Anglophone because they're reading it in English, but even once the book is translated, science fiction as a genre is a very ferociously Anglophone-dominated genre. And I'm therefore in a genre where people are quite accustomed to reading about features where everyone just speaks English, and there's not even any explanation of this. It's just (laughs) the case. Or where English has come to dominate everything. And I wanted, in this world where English is in fact a universal language, everyone in this world speaks English... But there are lots of spaces in which English isn't used or isn't welcome. The private discourse of people from the Japanese nation strat or Mm -hmm. people from the humanist hive who speak Spanish with each other are considered in this society to be private uh, linguistic spaces and invading those is culturally uncomfortable and taboo. Uh, so I wanted to be able to have that visual reminder in the form of punctuation for the reader of, A, 
no, this isn't a future in which English has erased all other languages. The other languages are there. Here they are. Here are these non-Anglophone spaces. And B, you, reader, are violating the taboos of this society by having access to this translated material. Right. If you were from this future, you would be feeling uncomfortable right now. Uh, how do you feel about imagining a future where that would be the case? Yeah, it's funny you talk about the, you know, Anglophone or English centricism, centrism, whatever, of, of a lot of science fiction. I know that uh, for a while in the 50s, 60s, and maybe into the 70s, Italian science fiction writers had English-sounding pen names. Mm -hmm. And they would <laughs> pretend yeah. that this was a translation uh, of, from some American pulp novel. So that's interesting. Um, among other things that are polite, private, and personal in mm -hmm. this world is uh, gender presentation, and how our narrator messes with us constantly. Yes. So, epicene they, that is to say using they and them to refer to an unspecified singular gender, is generalized completely um, in this future. And it doesn't matter if you know someone's uh, gender, you simply use they regardless. Yes. Uh, and, it, and it's been interesting because when I started writing this book... The use of they in that form, uh, the singular they, as I often call it, was much rarer in English. Right? I, I finished the first draft of this book almost ten years ago. Oh. Uh, and it's been fantastic watching how rapidly that practice has spread from being a much derided uh, slang to being something that journals and so on are accepting and encouraging and that newspapers are beginning to employ as English's newly derived gender-neutral singular uh, form. So uh, the reader who actually ended up reading this book this year when it came out is actually very different from the reader I imagined when I started it, who I expected to be much more uncomfortable with they being employed in that way. Uh, so that's been interesting. Yeah, I, I, I remember when I first started at it, there were a number of things. For example, had to had to render himself herself when using they that I couldn't find any of examples of anywhere. I had to decide for myself uh, to use themselves as the construction. Right, right. Let's use themselves or themselves. Ah, uh, right. Uh, but but the narrator then, of course, is very inconsistent about this, which is to say the society uses they, but the narrator in narration uses he and she. So the dialogue all has they, but the narrator always applies he and she to people. According to his own scheme that has nothing to do with biology in the way that most people would consider using he and she. Exactly. And that is even also independent of people's preferences, because Mycroft didn't go ask all of these people, right. what gender pronoun would you like to have? Mycroft has assigned these based on Mycroft's personal idiosyncratic notions of what gender means, which Mycroft is reconstructing. Uh, Mycroft is as far from understanding the way we use he and she as a Renfest is from correctly reconstructing the Renaissance. Right, right. That's an interesting way of thinking about that. Yeah, no, it is. It has been interesting watching the rapid. I mean, they, epicene, they, or gender neutral, they. It's been used for centuries, yes. just not widely. And suddenly, we need something other than he or she, and there it is, 
ready to fill in the role um, without having, you know, to make anything new up. Yes, and so it went from rare and derided to very common and discussed but not intense but not derided uh, in the course between when I wrote the book and when it's come out. Right. (laughs) Yeah, this near future science fiction always has to deal with the fact that in the course of writing, history might outpace you. Although the problem I've had more is that people keep asking me did X thing reflect X political situation? And I'll say no, X political situation did not exist yet at that time. Had Similarities. Not yet <laughs> happened. Yeah. Back to the Enlightenment a little bit. Yes. Uh, one of the uh, things that most conlangers will recognize as a product of the Enlightenment is uh, a mania for a while for rational language schemes. Things like Wilkins' real character... Um, I think Leibniz had ideas. Um, I don't know how many of the encyclopedists um, had notions about, you know, rational language. Um, how much did you look at those and how much did that work its way into the book, in t- just in terms of historical thinking for the background? I looked at those a little bit, but I think that those are not likely to be elements of the Enlightenment that get reflected in a revival. They're sort of one of the ones that are least effective because we've become so aware of how organic the evolution of language is. And we've had so many unsuccessful attempts at creating artificial languages. Esperanto has such a very interesting story that was not what people expected, though people have been doing other delightful things with it, but it hasn't become the universal language it was imagined to be. Uh, Even when I sat down to think about Masonic Neo-Latin, because one of the political groups in this speaks a revived form of Latin. Uh, When I sat down to develop that, I thought at first, well, wouldn't they simplify Latin? Wouldn't they get rid of a couple of declensions and have three instead of five um, and collapse together a couple of verb conjugations so that there would be fewer forms? And I started sitting down to do that but immediately thought, except that the first generation that's trying to speak this revival Latin are going to be classics buffs who are going to constantly be reading extant Latin, and that's going to influence it. And so in common words that you would use in everyday speech, I bet those terms are just, those uh, irregular forms are just going to come back again in the organic way that irregulars tend to cling to things. Uh, so in the end, despite the fact that I worked out a very elaborate linguistics of simplified Latin, I used very little of it in my Latin in the text. I was going to say, the only Latin we see, I didn't stare at it closely, but that looks like good good Ciceronian <laughs> Latin because of uh, the personality oh, of the speaker. There's one typo in the Latin in the hardcover. Oh, no! It's going to be fixed in the paperback. <laughs> It's interesting, I, I, I paid a lot of attention to the Latin, and here you get my history of Latinness geeking out a bit, because when people are speaking Latin dialogue to each other face-to-face, someone who's a member of the Latin-speaking political group, looking at that, I thought a lot about what happened with medieval Latin, which is to say, people in a practical sense who are just trying to communicate with each other in a language which is not a comfortable native language, 
tend to use very simple vocabulary, very simple sentence structure, and preferentially use the constructions that rep- that resemble the constructions in their own vernacular. So, for example, Latin has a zillion different ways to express because. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I remember as a Latin student learning all of them. And one of them is a quote clause. And the quote clause is just you say quote, which means because, and then you say the thing you are going to say. And it's so much easier than the others because it's the same structure that's used in my native vernacular. Now, when I first went to read medieval Latin, I noticed that they always use quote clauses whenever they have to express because. They had exactly the reaction that I, middle school Latin student, had of, hey, this one is easy because it feels like mine. And so the Latin dialogue that I write for the modern Latin speakers is not grammatically simplified in the sense of dropping declensions or dropping verb forms, but it is simplified in the sense of always preferentially using Anglophone or occasionally Germanophone uh, word order and uh, language and constructions. And when there are more than one way in Latin to express something, preferentially expressing it in the simplest way and the way that most resembles English. Uh, The result of that being that uh, that Latin, the test I ran was I would show it to friends who had never studied Latin, but had studied a Romance language. And they could all get the gist of what Ah. those sentences were saying without knowing Latin. Right. But there is then one character who speaks a very bizarrely different Latin, a much more classicizing Latin with rare vocabulary, with constructions that existed in Latin that do not in any way resemble English or other modern vernaculars. And when I showed that to people who had studied other Romance languages, they could understand everyone else's Latin but couldn't really get a word of his Latin. And when I showed it to Latinists, they could pretty effortlessly understand the others, but had to get out a dictionary for his <laughs> because his vocabulary is so strange. Uh, and that was intentional. And there I was also thinking of Renaissance Latin, which, just like medieval Latin, is not a spoken language that anyone is actually communicating with other humans in. If classical Latin is a language for people to talk to each other and write to each other, and medieval Latin is a formalization in which you record things for posterity or for official purposes or for uh, certain forms of stylized communication, Renaissance Latin is sort of a performance language, which humanists are showing off their elaborate knowledge of this language using vocabulary and constructions much more obscure and much more... uh, obtuse than anything Cicero would have ever said on the street or in an oration or to anyone. If classical Latin is walking, Renaissance Latin is doing an elaborate um, gymnastics routine. <laughs> that's a good way. Yes, that's a good way to describe that. I've tried, and, to, I've tried to read some of the, the sort of neo-Latin poetry from the Renaissance. It could be a little taxing. Yeah, it is. And and sometimes I, I have friends who are high school Latin teachers, and sometimes I send them truly choice Latin, uh, Renaissance Latin sentences to use to punish students who've been bad. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Um, 
Uh, and so the, the, the difference between the two Latins spoken, the Latin spoken by ordinary Latin speakers and the Latin spoken by this one very bizarre character right. helps communicate the bizarreness of this character in a way that gets across to Latinists because they see how weird his language is, but also gets across to non-Latinists because they see how different it is from his uh, from ordinary Latin as spoken by other people, which is penetrable to anybody who has ever studied even a semester of Spanish or French. Right. So how did you decide to have the Masons revive Latin? I mean, first of all, it's interesting to find the Masons suddenly a gigantic, uh, to find them as a full hive. Yes. That's like, okay, I mean, that makes sense, an enlightenment sort of thing. I, I didn't see anyone screaming about the Illuminati, well, so the, that was... And the description that I give of the way the Masons get formed is there's a period of chaos, everything is falling apart, people are scared, and there's this myth, practically urban legend, that the Masons are this super powerful thing. Right. So lots of scared people who don't have anywhere else to go because churches are becoming scary in the church war are turning to something else and go and show up on the Masons' front doorstep and are like, you're a giant political power, aren't you? Can I join you? And the Masons are like, uh, sure, we are now. Um, and, and then intelligent, prudent political leaders organize this force. So it sort of sucks up all of the people who are left over from all of the other things who are drawn together by this myth. And the reason for reviving Latin is like the reason for reviving all their other bizarrely archaizing practices, like having their capital building be a huge ziggurat. Right. Um, which is that the, uh, the trappings of antiquity, the, the ability to claim that you go back for millennia, the ability to feel as if you have a secret private access to this secret private force is the charisma that that brings this group together when it first forms. So Latin functions there, much as it did in the Middle Ages, as being the language of permanence, of elitism, and of privileged access. And so people are excited by the idea of, oh, I can join this elite group and I can learn the language of privileged access and then we can have our privileged conversations in that group. So, for example, when I describe the narrator, Mycroft, who is translating all of this dialogue out of various languages, he's very uncomfortable with translating Latin. Yeah, I, I remember fact, that. Yeah, and he leaves much of the Latin in Latin. Uh, because he's too uncomfortable with violating the charisma of this private uh, language uh, to be comfortable rendering it in English. So it's propaganda. The, the use of Latin is propaganda in this period, much as it has been propaganda in many other ch chunks of human history since it stopped being a spoken language. Right. And just the appeal of antiquity. Mm -hmm. Something that you can claim has <laughs> lasted for millennia seems to have a certain draw as well. Right, even if, if it's not the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there are so many examples of things being done or celebrated or respected or venerated or spared because people thought that they had antiquity, whether they did or not. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. So we've covered everything on my list. Was there anything in particular about language in, in your process of writing this book and the remaining three, is it, to come? Yes, there are three more. Three more to come? Four books total. Although I've just sent off the copy edit of book two, and the draft of book three is also done, so I'm working on book four right now. Yay! So not too long to wait. 
it's funny. I I love the Latin and I love all of the different realistic linguistic elements. I would say that the hardest for me when I'm sitting down in front of it, the hardest linguistic element of the book, other than trying to write J.E.D.D. Mason's dialogue. <laughs> right. <laughs> which will and forever be the hardest thing. Um, other than that, the hardest thing to do is utopian you speak. Oh, um, yeah. The utopians are this uh, space-faring and futurism-oriented group that uh, it's another one of the hives uh, they're the ones who run the moon base. They're working on terraforming Mars. They, uh, they're they very aloof and a bit distanced from other groups, or at least that's the way they're described. Uh, they wear these long coats that have computer processing that transform the image of what's on the other side. So when a utopian walks by in front of a building, you see what that building would look like if it was in space, or if it's a different utopian, if it was an ancient ruin, or if it's a different utopian, if it were a frog castle, or whatever <laughs> the particular utopian has. Um, so they're very fun, they're very they're the most science fictional element of the world in many ways, uh, and they speak a kind of variant English referred to everyone else as, by everyone else as you speak, in which they use a lot of words for normal English words with different meanings with science fiction and fantastic weight to what those different meanings are. So that uh, if a utopian is trying to tell you to stay calm, the utopian will tell you to stay Vulcan. Which doesn't make any sense until you think about it in a science fictional context and then you can figure it out. And that is actually very difficult. Every time I sit down to write a utopian dialogue, I think for a long time about what words and phrases with science fictional and or fantastical and or mythological weight that utopian would perhaps naturally use in the course of this sentence. And uh, that's hard. Using using English weirdly... Right. For me, is harder than either creating neologisms out of logical cultural development or using foreign languages. Right. And it, it's really easy to accidentally trip over into the ridiculous where that's not what you're intending. Exactly. Because you really need it to feel natural. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It sounds like uh, for the sensayers, must be in college for, you know, 20 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it sounds like to be a utopian requires a mastery of a, a pretty good, a pretty large back knowledge as well. Well, yes and no, because they're growing up with each other, so they're learning the words. You know, when when one of them is using that word, that person hasn't necessarily ever seen Star Trek. Oh, that person yeah. has inherited the usage of that word in that sense from other people, uh, and it's amazing how quickly children will develop a pigeon, right? Right. One of my sources in working on this book and thinking about the way language would work in this book was time that I spent in Florence at an international research institute there run by Harvard called the Villa Itati. And there were fellows there from, I think, 19 different countries. And by chance, the year I was there as a uh, graduate student, no, the year I was there as a, as a fellow, uh, almost everybody had kids. Uh, I didn't, but almost everybody had kids. So there was this little swarm of kids. And 
they were Italian and Chinese and French and Australian and German and Spanish. And within a month, they had invented this language that was a hybrid of all of these words that they taught each other. Because they were all little enough that they were learning words constantly and they didn't even really think about the fact that those words were in one language bucket or another language bucket. And it was incredible watching this pigeon evolve that fast, which I'm sure none of them could speak anymore because they left at the end of the year. Right. Uh, and, and such things are fragile. Uh, but in that sense, I see the utopians passing this usage on not because they're all incredibly versed in all of this science fictional and mythological material, but because somebody coined the term some, and people started using it and then they yeah. use it as each other. It's the only weird English we see spoken. Everybody else's English, whether that person is Tibetan uh, or Roman, is the same English. And this is intended as a cue to help show that there's a cultural split between Utopia and everyone else in the way, in a particular way that there isn't between any of the other groups. Yeah. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for coming on to our unusual little podcast here to talk about language. My pleasure. I love linguistic geekery. <laughs> yes. So that's Ada Palmer. Uh, the book Two Like the Lightning came out in May. I recommend it. It's fun. Um, your next book is out is in February? Yes, Seven Surrenders. Seven Surrenders. It was originally going to come out in uh, December, but they delayed it because the they're trying to rush out a paperback of the first book. First, apparently the sales were unexpectedly good. Okay, good. So it's the best possible reason for a delay. Yeah, good, <laughs> good. And I'm going to say, happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash conlangery. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, and on Tumblr now. All of those you just find conlangery. Our web space is provided by the Language Creation Society. Our theme music is by Null Device. And our new site was designed by Bianca Richards. 